Let me just eliminate all of the white noise for They're you. They're counting on you not understanding what this is all about. They want to create conflict. They want to create this chaos. They want you to be stupid. This is the Conservative Daily Podcast with Joe Waldman. Yeah, I'm a threat because I'm telling you what the Constitution says. And Max McGuire. The flak is the heaviest when the bomber is right above the target about to open the bomb bay doors. And now the Conservative Daily Podcast is on the air. Welcome back to another edition of the Conservative Daily Podcast. My name is Max McGuire, and joining us today is a very special guest, a man who probably needs no introduction. General Keith Kellogg, one of the only, one of the longest serving advisors to the president, a retired general in the army, welcoming him to the show now. General, welcome. Max, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate um, being able to talk to you. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and obviously you have a brand new book out, War by Other Means. If we go ahead and put that image up on the screen real quick for everyone. Um, I am almost all the way through it, <laughs> and uh, anyone who wants to buy it, it is on sale now. You can go ahead and find the link in our description um, or wherever you, you buy your books. It's pretty much everywhere at this point. General, I was telling you as we were getting ready to go to air, it's so refreshing to see a positive book come out of the Trump presidency. So many people that Trump trusted seem to be willing to stab him in the back the minute there's a chance to to earn a little coin. I just want to say thank you for writing actually a positive book for a change. And obviously, the president obviously trusted you. And thank you for, uh, for, for deserving that trust, earning that trust. Yeah, well, thanks, Max. Well, one of the reasons I wrote it is, is um, actually it all started in the Oval Office when I was talking to him and he said earlier, um, why don't you write a book? And I said, I don't do books. And she goes and said, no, you should. I went home and talked to my daughter. And we were sitting around the dinner table, and she said, yeah, Dad, you need to write a book, and you need to title it Behind Closed Doors. And I said, why? I said, Dad, you've seen a perspective of John Trump, both in the campaign, and I was on a 2015-16 campaign, and I had not known him before that. And then uh, 1,461 days in the White House, and I served with him longer than only four other people, Jared, Commissioner Ivanka Trump, myself, Steve Miller, and Dan Scavino, and two of them don't count because they're family. And we're <laughs> with them the whole time, campaign going forward. And the reason why she said that, she said, Dad, you've seen him in close quarters. When, when the lights are not on, I said, yeah, I remember the first time I was with him and I talked to him, and we're sitting there just kind of BS, and then we goes in front of a news conference, and I thought to myself, who is that guy? Because you know, when he went in front of the lights, he was a different type of person. He kind of played to the crowd. That goes back to the showman days when he had yeah. the apprentice and a few other out there. But w when you sat and talked with him, it, it was really amazing. First of all, he's he's wicked smart. He's got incredible instincts. And, and that was through the years he came up as a builder and what he tried to do in, in the construction industry. Uh, he's in, he loves Americans in America. I mean, he, he bleeds red, white, and blue. He loves the American military. And there was some, when there's some criticism with the American military as a retired general officer, I used to get really frustrated because that wasn't true. And he just wanted to do what was right for America. It was always America first. If we do it right for Americans, then then everything else will take care of itself. And he used to say, I'm more worried about the people in Washington, Kansas, than the people in Washington, D.C. And I saw that part of him. And I said, you know, that part of him needs to be written about. And I'm sure a lot of people say, well, he had mean tweets. I got it. Okay, he could be profane. He could write really mean tweets. He punched back really hard. You hit him, he hit back twice as hard. 
But that was his nature. He was a brawler. But he was a brawler for the American people. I don't care if it was immigration. I don't care if it was defense. I don't care if it was trade. It was always in the best interest of the Americans out there. People just didn't like what he said sometimes when he tweeted. They said, my attitude was fine. Tell me about policies that were bad. And nobody can at all, Max. And yeah. I think we did a job in that regard. Well, there's an anecdote from the book that I found pretty humorous, and you described it as being hired and fired at the same time when they when they sat you down and Pence asked you to be his um, national security advisor. But Trump also said, but I still want you to. Um, what was it yeah. like to be trusted by both men? Obviously, if you're in the White House, you're going to be giving advice to both men. But what was it like to, to be trusted by Pence and Trump to be in that inner circle? Well, well you know, they all... Both of them knew that my primary goal was to support the American people. The second was they knew that I was an advisor. And when, when I mean by an advisor, our job is an advisor. Any person's job is an advisor to give the advice, the best advice you can give to the nation. But once that advice is given, you step back because they're the ones who got the electoral college votes. And I, I checked, you know, the ballot forms of a few years ago. I didn't get any electoral college votes at all, you know. And it's their job to make the decisions. That's what the people are hired for. And what happened that day was when I was brought on as Mike Pence's national security advisor, I was across the street having a sandwich, and I got a call. I always carry two phones. One was a personal phone, one was a secure phone from the situation room. And both rang simultaneously. They said, in the Oval now. And I used to never go off campus to go get some. Ran across, ran through this, you know, Secret Service uh, security into the Oval office, and I walk into the back Oval, which is a small presidential dining room, and everybody's laughing and smiling. I go, oh. And the yeah. president goes, um, Mike has a Mike as in Vice President Pence has a question for you. I, th I was thinking Iraq, Afghanistan, brave. Yeah. What is it going to be? And he says, "Would you be my national security advisor?" And I didn't say a word. And he says, "Well, we can talk about it tomorrow." I said, "No, no, no. Of all things, I thought you were going to ask me. That was the last thing I thought you we were going to ask me. You know, <laughs> being that." And then he and, I, and the president said, "I'd like you to do it because he doesn't have one right now because he's a left and gone to the State Department." But he said at the time, he said, "But you're also going to remain as an assistant to the president." And an, an assistant, or a bed, we'd call them APs, assistants to the president, mm -hmm. or commissioned officers in the White House. And he said, I want to be able to draw on you at any time. And because of that, I had that duality. And I was in on every single meeting that the president had, the vice president had. And, and I think I got what was trusted by both. And I had that ability to, to operate both ways and was able to actually, lack of a better term, bring them together, work with them, and give them both the guidance at the same time. And I felt very comfortable. And because of that, I had an incredible cachet within the White House because, you know, both both teams, the VP's team and the president's team, knew I had one goal, and it was to support both of them to the best of my ability. So, and I thought I did, you know, and I felt pretty good about it, and I walked out of it with pretty good, um, you know, pretty good feelings when we finally went out on the 20th of January. So I'm I'm a student of history. I like to study. It's kind of nerdy. I like to study the way different presidents make decisions. And I've always been particularly partial to how Dwight Eisenhower employed different tactics for de presidential decision making. He borrowed a lot of it from the military, right? He had this whole concept that he called Policy Hill, and he would expect his advisors to bring things up, to do all the legwork, then bring things up the hill to where he can decide yes or no on it. And then he would bring it down the hill where those same policy advisors would basically carry it out. I want to know what Donald Trump's decision making process was like. Because every president is different, yeah. every every leader is different. How did he make decisions? Was he was he micromanaging things the way that the media love to paint? I don't. I presume he wasn't, or was he taking more of a CEO approach, having other people do the heavy lifting and bring it to him for signature? 
Yeah, you know, Max, the best way I can describe it, it was, it was Socratic. You know, I came out of a Jesuit university, and we had to learn all about the, the you know, great philosophers. I know that well, and, yeah. And what I mean by that is, and it was one of the very first times we were in the Situation Room in the White House, and it was a pretty, it was one of those pricey situations. It happens all the time when you're the president in the White House, and we were in there sitting in with him and the vice president, the whole national security team, and he, and he, he would sit there and talk to people and start asking hard questions. He wanted to find out first where you really felt about something, and he'd dig pretty hard at you. But he would go around the room, and everybody in the room had a chance to talk. And I remember sitting there, and two chairs down from me was a young lady, and he got to her and he said, okay, what do you think? And she looked at him and she goes, Mr. President, I'm just a note-taker. He said, not in this room, you're not. And you've got an opinion. And, I want and he would go around and talk to everybody, and then he'd make a rapid decision. And the decision was after we everybody talked, he had a shot at making it. But no, and then he left it up to us to execute. It, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I, I, one time I said, you know, Mr. President, sort of like, I will tell you when this is not a good idea. For example, Mr. President, if you said, uh, I want to send pigs to the moon, I'd probably tell you that's probably not a very good idea. But if you said, I want to send pigs to the moon, and you made that decision, I'd just say, okay, how many do you want to send? And we'll figure out how to do it. And that was advisors to do that. He would, we would give him the information. He would make the decision. And it was our job to execute the decision to the best degree possible and keep him fully informed on how it was going. He did that with every single decision and the decisions were good, but he made decisions rapidly. You know, like for example, giving a good example, we, when we went after Soleimani, who was the Iranian general that led the Quds force, mm-hmm. I was directly responsible for killing Americans in Iraq. And our embassy was known to taken over on New Year's day in 2020. Um, he made the decision to punish the Iranians because he knew they were behind it. But he, he said, I'm not going to go tip for cat. The military always likes to say, well, it has to be proportionate. They do this, we do this, you go here, we go here. His, his attitude was, no, you have to, you, you have to, super escalators, I would call it. You have to make, you punish your adversary so hard. He says, you know, I never want to go in this stance again. And that's why we went after Soleimani, who was the third ranking guy in Iran, was to send a message to the Supreme Leader and everybody else that we were going to do it. And we sat in the yellow oval inside the, uh, in the residence there, uh, in, inside the White House complex, and we briefed him on it, and we made the comment, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it took everybody by surprise because that was a pretty significant step. In fact, people in the room said, that'll never happen. And he said, why? He said, well, Soleimani will never travel after all these threats and things going on. And I said to the president, no, he will. I said, and they said, well, why? I said, because his arrogance is going to kill him. He thinks you don't want the depths to pull the trigger. Well, guess what? If you try to own Soleimani, you're going to get a disconnected number right now because he's not around anymore. But the president would make those hard decisions, and we knew they were critical decisions, and they were tough decisions, and we were criticized for Soleimani. We were criticized for moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We knew that. He was criticized for the Abraham Accords. You know, we, we always got these criticisms, but he was able to weather, weather them out, work through them, because once he got his, the word from all his advisors, he would make a hard decision, make them fast. He wouldn't wait a week or two weeks, and then we'd execute. Well, I mean, that, that, that's exactly what I thought, the decision-making process. I'm, I'm a little I'm tongue-in-cheek, but so you're, you're saying that turning Soleimani into pink mist wasn't the original plan? Well, nobody thought they could, nobody wanted to escalate like that. Well, not nobody. There was a couple like me um, wanted to super escalate. But the general response you get from the defense officials, and I 
everybody from General Mattis to HR McMaster River, it was always tit for tap. It was always called, we have to have a proportionate response. His attitude was, no, you don't. He said, because yeah. if they do something to the United States of America and they attack American citizens, there's no proportion to this. And he would react to a level that would pause them to, cause them to pause and say later on, I'm not going to do that. Look, when we killed Soleimani, here was the response. And this is really illustrative of, of what happened when we did that. We got a call right after we killed Soleimani. And we got a, it was from the Russians and from the Swiss. And the Swiss were our intermediaries um, in, inside Iran because we don't have an embassy mm-hmm. there, obviously. Yeah. And they sent us a message that said, okay, the Iranians are going to shoot missiles at you at Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, but they're going to miss everything. They're going to hit dirt. And, uh, and then they're going to be, they're going to walk away, they, but they've got to respond. I said, okay. So we all went down to the situation room when we knew they were going to come in. And there's a picture actually in the book, there's a whole sitting in the situation room. If you pull that book up, that picture in the book up, you'll see us all looking in, towards the screen and we're looking at the missiles coming in. But if you look real close, you'll see Mike Pompeo has two phones in front of me, the secretary of state, one was to the Russians, one was to the Swiss, with, uh, telling us what was going on. And they fired missiles and hit dirt. And I remember the vice president looking at me and going, well, we were lucky. I said, no, sir. They clearly intended for us yeah. to for those dirt. They were tipped by Glossnass, which is their equivalent of GPS. They put them in there. They had to respond. They hit dirt. Now they're done. And the president sat there, and he sat there with his arms crossed, and we waited for 10 minutes. Nothing more happened. He looked around the room, and he said, we're done. He walked up left. His point being, we made our point. They were able to respond to save face. They knew that the Supreme Leader knew that he was next if we were going to come after him. We had just killed yeah. the most charismatic military leader, a terrorist leader, Qasim Soleimani, and they fired missiles into the dirt. That's called force respect. And, yeah. and he did that decision-making. So let me ask you this. Again, student of history, with Trump, I, I saw a lot of Ronald Reagan in Trump. And by that, I mean the, the very famous madman theory that Reagan employed against the Soviet Union. Reagan never intended to launch a nuclear war against the Soviet Union um, without cause, but he wanted the Soviet Union to think that he was a little crazy. Was there any of that going on with Trump? Because obviously you have the tweets and we and you mentioned that the tweets are different. You have the way that he was when he was actually making decisions. Was there ever talk about being deliberately a little bit of a, of a madman just to keep these adversaries off their on their toes? It was all the time. Max, Max, he believed in using language that was hard language to make the other side doubt what he was going to do. And he would be very, very strong. When he, uh, when we went through the, uh, the drawdown in Afghanistan and when he talked to the Taliban leadership, uh, a gentleman by the name of Lolo Barager, who was the chief negotiator for the Taliban, we'd signed the, the Doha agreement uh, that was started to get us out of mm-hmm. Afghanistan in the and or not how it ended up today, because it would have never ended up the way it was when Biden took over, I guarantee you on that. But he called him four days after we signed the agreement in Doha, or Zalko's honor, our administrator did. And it was it was translated between the president and Barter. And he used language I thought, God, how is this being translated? Because he was pretty blunt. He basically told them we, if you violate these accords and you violate this agreement and you cause us problems in Afghanistan, and when we try to get out of there and, and setting up a, a government, a coalition type of government, a government of national reconciliation, I will find you. I'll find your family. 
I'll find all your buddies and all your friends. And we will use every means necessary to punish you. And the words were actually stronger than that. And it was really clear what he was saying. And, and we all kind of knew, well, you know, that wasn't going to happen that way. But at least yeah. they had to understand it. Was, you know, I remember. Yeah, saying, I, <laughs> I think the I think I, the quote was, "I'm going to bomb your ancestral villages." I think that's how it ended yeah. up being translated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which you can't do. That would be a war crime. But you want them to worry about it. Well, yeah, we, and we did. And, and here's what, and here's the result of that discussion he had and the agreement. You know, it's amazing, Max, that from that agreement till the time we left the administration was well, what, almost 18 months. There was not a single American killed in Afghanistan. Not one. Because they understood, it was very clear, you kill an American, this deal is off, and we're going to come after you. And that's, that's this thing called forced respect, and he would do that, and he made sure everybody understood it. He did a lot of things. and I, I, He did it in trade. You know, he did it with, the, I remember when he was talking to the Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, when we found out that uh, they were charging in the range of 270% tariffs on butter coming out of Wisconsin yeah. and Minnesota into Canada. He said, fine, I'm going to, you know, tariff your steel 270%. And he did it. And he said, yeah. I'm going to do this. He's going to clear. And then when Trudeau said, oh, no, 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 I don't didn't mean that. Well, then they all kind of backed down. But that's what he would do. He did the same thing with NATO. When we when he kept, you know, browbeating NATO to fulfill their obligation that they agreed to in the Wales Declaration of 2014 of 2% GDP on defense, which 20% of that was modernization. Only nine countries have done that. And yet we were doing over 3% of of our GDP into NATO. But he would do that and be very, very harsh. And people say, oh, he's talking really mean. Yeah, but he got results, got it done going to take a real quick break from this interview to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Air Med Care Network. Air Med Care Network, the premier insurance plan to cover you and your family should any of you ever suffer a medical emergency and need to be airlifted to a hospital. We don't get to choose when a disaster strikes. We don't get to choose where a disaster strikes. And it's not just people who fall off the side of a mountain or get lost in the woods who need to be airlifted. You'd be shocked to learn just how many people in the suburbs and the cities have to be flown by hospital to hospital by a helicopter. And it can be very expensive over 60 grand in some cases. Well, don't let it bankrupt your family. Sign up with AirMedCare Network, and it's going to only cost you $85 for one year, and that covers your entire household. And as a bonus, when you sign up using the link in our description, airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash daily, and then use promo code daily, we're going to give you up to $50 back in the form of an e-gift card. It's free money. So again, go to airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash daily and use promo code daily to get up to $50 back. So let me ask you this. I, I want to get to Afghanistan in a second, but I want to ask you this because obviously you worked on the National Security Council. You were in the White House. Why did so many leaks come out of the National Security Council? It seemed like every week, obviously it wasn't you, but it seemed like every week, every month, there was just something coming out of this this part of the, of the, the White House response structure just damaging to the president. You mentioned that no one ever voted for you on the Electoral College. It seems like there were people in the in the National Security Council who believed that they knew better than the president. Did you guys ever get to the yeah. bottom of who was actually doing all the leaking? Well, we had a couple. And one of them was this guy called Anonymous, who turned out to be really not even in the White House, and it was all rumor control. And his, his book came out, it was you know, old a lot. And we found out he was really kind of a nobody. That was a real shocker, I think, later on. But I think what happened when you, when you had a national security apparatus, 
which is so used to doing it how it's always been done before. And in comes a guy who's pretty brash, never been part of Washington, D.C. In fact, he, he tells a story. He, he was in, had been to Washington, D.C. 17 times in his life and never spent the night. And, and now you've got an apparatus out there that said, well, we know better than the president. You know, we have been doing this, and we are actually smarter than he is. You know, we can solve the Korean problem. All we need to do is negotiate for the next 20 years. Well, you know, we know what we're supposed to do in the Middle East or in NATO. They said, no, you guys don't. And because he basically pulled them up short, there was a lot of people who felt either their livelihood was at stake or what, what you mean to tell me what I've been thinking is wrong for the last 15, 20 years? And we say, yeah, you, you've got it all wrong. He wants to think, at the, look at, think and look at the world differently than you guys are. Well, you know, we've all seen it in life, Max, where you do that and some people get pretty aggravated about it. And then they start leaking because they say, oh, I'm smarter than he is. And I found that a lot in the White House where there were people who said, I'm just smarter than the president. I said, yeah, well, you're not billionaires either. You know, and, and I said, the fact is, he ran for president, he won, you didn't. And I even told John Kelly that, and I told Lance Priebus that. I said, you know, you all guys ought to be very careful out there because, you know, you're trying to be the president, and you're not. You didn't get an electoral college vote. <clears throat> and you give him the best advice, and then after that, he makes the hard decision. And, oh, by the way, he's been pretty good in decision-making through his life. He had some ups yeah. and some downs, but really tempered him in, in what he was able to do in life. And, and a lot of you guys haven't. I think a lot of it was, you know, simply I'll use one word. They were jealous. Yeah. We're, we're talking with General Keith Kellogg, author of the new book, War by Other Means. If you want if you want to get it, it's for sale now everywhere you can buy books. Link is in the description. General, I understand that. Obviously, you were an ally of the president. You mentioned that you were there for over 1,400 days, over 1,461 days. I, th I think that one of the big takeaways from this, th this administration, Trump's administration, is when you get into office, you fire the holdovers. You just do it. And now I know that it, it's probably not as easy as that, but we saw so much leaking, so much grief, so much aggravation from people who were held over from previous administrations doing exactly what you said, getting jealous, thinking that they know better, including the alleged whistle whistleblower, the Cherimella guy, right, who was in the National Security uh, Council for a bit. If you could do it again, if you could go back in time and be there on day one on Inauguration Day, would you let these holdovers stay? No. Um, I, if I had to do it again, and, and it, honestly, Max, I'm probably part of the problem. Because we all came into in the White House thinking that there was going to be a sound of a kumbaya. Here we have a new president. The president always has a honeymoon. He's the first president that... that meaning Trump never had a honeymoon, and you had people that were working against us from the start. You make an assumption going in there, and based on my military you know, time, is that people are basically good. Well, that is not necessarily true at all. And, if, and my, the one lesson I took out of this, and I talked to everybody from Jared Kushner to Ivanka Trump to the president, if I had to do it again, I'd walk in the door and say, everybody out today, and do what's yeah. called the DNA, and get into the White House, and I'd totally strip it out. And that's the only way you can do it. Uh, going uh, going forward. I think, you know, candidly, Biden, in a way, has got that done when he basically removed everybody. My entire staff, when I was a national security advisor, the vice president is gone, was gone within the first week. And that's how I'd do it. I'd do it, and I'd be, I'd be absolutely ruthless about it. I'd say, I will find the people I want to bring in, and I'll keep the people I want to keep uh, going forward, but I wouldn't tolerate that at all. And that's one of the hard lessons we all learned. You know, 
part of it is we probably didn't have the right presidential personnel officer, which is called a PPO, which is a guy that kind of runs that. We didn't, we, it was only until later on when we put a guy named Johnny McEntee in charge, who was pretty hard uh, and understood personnel and understood the president's desires that we got ourselves going forward. So, but I'm going to be honest with you, I, you know, I'm going to take some of the blame on that sucker because I, I wish I had known better. I, you know, made some altruistic thoughts, but boy, I'll tell you, I got scar tissue on it and I would have been a lot more ruthless. And if something happens like this again, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. And we understand the loyalty and the trust going forward. Yeah. Um, and that was, I would say that to me, if I had to pick the, the cardinal mistake that we made coming into the White House was we trusted people in the personnel side of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you were also put in an impossible position because so many of the establishment Republican um, officials, experts, right, the policy experts who just kind of rotate in and out of Republican administrations, so many of them had taken such a hard stance against Trump during the primary and during the general election saying, I will never work for this man. Um, in, in other ways, you were kind of left with an impossible impossible task of all the people that would be probably typically best fit for the job had policy differences and didn't want to. So uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it. I, I wouldn't blame yourself. I mean, it, it was a, it was a viper's den in a lot of, in a lot of ways, but you weren't, you weren't one of them. I want to ask you about Syria before we get to Afghanistan, because there was a report not too long ago that there were advisors who were deliberately lying to president Trump about how many soldiers, American soldiers were still in Syria. I guess, I guess to kind of trick him into keeping soldiers there that if he knew that there were that many, he would want to pull them out. Did you ever get wind of that? Yeah, we did. And, and we saw that and we were able to track it. And, it, and part of it is because when I go to the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joe Dunford before that, then Mark after that, when I would get conflicting reports, I'd kind of say, guys, you're not telling me the truth because the reports are always different. And we saw yeah. where they would kind of play a little bit of a game. Uh, Syria is a good example of having people there because he wanted to get out of there. He said, look, we need to withdraw our people from Syria. They're in harm's way. There's no reason to be there. And, and we'll take aggressive action once we completed the reduction of the, the caliphate, which we did. It's time to come home and there's no reason to stay there at all. You're going to put kids in harm's way. But, you know, it, it, what I found... Is an, this is a, from a retired military officer. Is sometimes the military doesn't necessarily want to end wars. We saw that in Afghanistan, and they believe it's kind of like uh, this is our way of going forward, putting stars on our shoulders, and being macho men about it. Instead of saying let's withdraw properly and put our forces in reserve, and then we'll, you know, speak softly and carry a really big stick going forward. But but I saw that as well, and we used to bring people up short on that. Uh, we saw that happen in Syria. We saw the same thing happen in Afghanistan as well. And that is, frankly, I think that is one of the concerns I've had. And I, I wrote an op-ed recently on accountability. You know, I, I, there's a lot of people, I think, today in the military we need to hold accountable for a lot of things that have happened over the last 18 years. And, and some of that is the lack of candor with the commander-in-chief. And I think, to me, you know, I'll even say that at the current uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who, by the way, I know, I've known him for years, that say you, you couldn't be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs anymore because, to me, uh, you, you're not, you haven't been held accountable for losing a war um, where we've lost 2,000 dead, over 2,000 dead, 20,000 wounded, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, and we lose a war, and everybody kind of says, oh, well, 
what's for breakfast tomorrow? You know, that's yeah. stunning to me. So, so there's yeah. a whole issue of accountability that I think the military needs to come back to. It, it really has been a shock to see the reaction with Afghanistan, how there is no, I mean, we don't want to put, we're not going to put anyone's head on a pike, right? It's not like, not like the old days when that would literally happen, but there's no demotions. There's no firings. I mean, even after a victorious war, you usually see generals getting demoted just because when you ramp up and you promote everyone, cause you need them, you don't need a bunch of generals just, just around. But no one's gotten demoted. No one's gotten fired. No one's gotten any formal reprimand. No court martials. Nothing. And you mentioned Milley. Mark Milley has testified under oath and admitted that on a phone call with his Chinese counterparts, he promised that he would give them a heads up should the United States ever attack them. General Kellogg, I am not a uh, a lawyer. I like to play one on TV sometimes. But treason is defined in the U.S. Constitution. And it includes giving aid and comfort to the enemy. I cannot imagine anything more comforting to the enemy than a promise to give them a heads up and call them should missiles ever start flying in their direction. Uh, how does this guy still have a job? Well, it's a, it's a pretty good question. I said earlier, Max, I know Mark Milley, in fact, I wrote him a note and said, you know, your behavior is seditious. And I never responded to him. You know, he never came back to me talking that it was out there. Uh, that that it happened. Look, here's where my concern is. With I'm a big believer in civilian control of the military. I think Article Two, Section Two of the Constitution, really clear. There's the unitary commander in chief one, and in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs role, he's got three roles. One of them is to be the principal military advisor to the president, principal military advisor to the Secretary of Defense, and principal military advisor to the National Security Council. That's it. His job is not to pick up the phone and call the Chinese unless he's talked to the president. The president said, go ahead and do it. That's not his role. He's not one of the, what they call the national command authorities. There's only two. It's the president, the secretary of defense. And so he's an, he's an advisor. That's all he is. He doesn't have troops, command troops, or anything else. And his phone call to me on the 8th of January sent a message to the Chinese that this nation was disarray. It was further, nothing could be further from the truth. I was in the Oval on the 6th of January and the 7th of January. In the 8th of January, we were doing just fine. Thank you very much. It was okay. It was a little bit you know, contentious, but you know, the national security apparatus was fine. It was up and running, and we were okay with it. And I think Mark really went, went, went well beyond what he should have been doing as a, as a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, he said later on, well, on the 8th of January, well, I did pick up the phone and tell Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, what I had done. I thought, and I told Mark, Mark, you know, you're not the principal military advisor to the White House Chief of Staff. The principal military advisor of the president should pick up the phone and ask him yeah. before you did that. You send a terrible message to adversaries because what that would register to me, if I got a call from that and I was on a receiving hand, I would say to myself, these guys are really screwed up. There's some disarray yeah. going on and there's weakness out there. And he caused that. I don't care what he says, but he did it. Because of that, he should have been removed. He should have resigned on his own and been removed because he violated to me the principal rule of of civilian control of the military. And what I would have done, I mean, I would have done what George C. Marshall done. If you did it. When you said, what would you do differently? You know, George C. Marshall in 1940, that great architect of victory that we had, um, removed an awful lot of officers before the war started. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the reason he did that is he thought the, the, the officers that he had at the time weren't capable either intellectually or physically to go into World War II 
and win our nation's war. And that's one of the reasons why Dwight D. Eisenhower jumped 350 people in one night because he got rid of them. And I, I say to myself, maybe we ought to think real hard on accountability as we're moving a lot of senior officers and just say, why don't we just kind of start all over again and rebuild and send a very clear message that the commander-in-chief is the civilian. You know, I, there's, a, there's a great story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt when, uh, when he wanted to invade North Africa in World War II. Uh, George C. Marshall and his general said, that's a dumb idea, Mr. President, don't do it. Well, it was the only order that Franklin Roosevelt signed, Roosevelt commander-in-chief, directing that it happened. And he wanted to make sure he understood the commander. Years later, Marshall's executive officer, Dwight D. Eisenhower, said that was one of the best moves he'd ever seen done. And I think that needs to be done sooner rather than later. Going to step away real quick to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Liberty Cigars. Liberty Cigars is a Patriot-owned business with an extensive line of historically-themed individual cigars and cigar collections, including the Commander Series, the Founder Series, and the President Series. All of their packaging is proudly made in the USA by American workers, and it's a truly unique gift for both cigar and history lovers alike. So here's the deal. When you go to LibertyCigars.com and use promo code BEFREE, B-E-F-R-E-E, any order over $76 is going to receive a free additional Benedict Arnold cigar. That's right, a free cigar added on top. Now, this is the perfect gift for your traitorous liberal family members or friends or just for anyone or smoke it yourself. Again, go to LibertyCigars.com and use promo code BEFREE, B-E-F-R-E-E, to get a free Benedict Arnold cigar added to all orders over $76. When, I'm re when I was reading all the details about the Millie call, I was reminded of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is one of the closest that the United States has ever come to an actual nuclear war. Thank God it didn't happen, but there were fingers hovering over the button, and the slightest mistake, the slightest miscalculation could have led to thermonuclear war, literally the end of the human race. It's, it's a terrifying moment in our history. And when you look at what Mark Milley was promising, I mean, I, I, I hope and pray that he never actually would have followed through with it because a worst case scenario, we attack China, giving them a heads up. We guarantee nuclear mushroom clouds over American cities. I mean, obviously that's the worst case scenario, but it, that, goes beyond, that goes beyond treason at that point. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. Someone who would be in such a position of power and authority to warn an adversary to give them like a leg up it just it just perplexes me. And you mentioned that he should have never even made the call. The reason that you don't have people making the call is you want them all to go through one person or one chain of command. So there's not getting they're not getting mixed messages. I just there's not a question there. I'm just I'm so perplexed about how he still has a job and his personal character. Put that aside. It is it is just such an egregious violation of of pretty much every everything he's supposed to be doing to make that call i just i don't know how biden would trust him even if he's doing what biden likes in that moment i don't know how biden could trust him yeah you know it, you know, if you look back at the former chairmans i don't care if it's joe dunford or, or myers or hugh shelton uh colin powell none of them would have done that and you know that and you said and you said as a student of history you can look back on what the chairmans did, and none of them did what they did, what he did. And that's, you know, and I think that's where he made a huge mistake. And I think he loses trust by the American people and the chairman. And I told Mark Milley that. I said, Mark, there's half the American people right now don't trust you as chairman. And, and it, which is really, you know, honestly, Max, it's a hard thing to say. And I kind of know that because I, I know the guy. 
uh, and it sounds pretty harsh, but it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago again, is no, there's civilian control of the military has to be absolute. You know, the Constitution is very clear. There's a unitary commander chief, one, and that's the guy who gets to make the decisions going there. And by the way, I was with the president very rational. He wasn't running around, you know, saying stupid yeah. things and doing things out there. He was very calm. In a, in a crisis, he was incredibly calm. He would dial it down, be very calm about what was going on. He wouldn't raise his voice. You know, and there were meetings when people would raise their voice. But when we got into a crisis situation, I did not find a single instance where I looked over him and I was in every single one of them. Where I'd said to myself, okay, we got an issue here, or somebody being, you know, nearly out of control. He was really calm and collected. And that's the reason if you go into the book and see that one picture of us in the situation room, where he's sitting there with his arms crossed across, you know, across his chest, that's how he was. He was just very matter of yeah. fact. I'll do it and go there. And it's very comfortable. I used to tell him, I said, you know, Mr. President, you're really a reluctant warrior. And he got mad at me. And, and I go, no, 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 wait, Mr. President. That's a compliment. And it's a compliment because I know you'll drop gloves to use a hockey term in a heartbeat and go yeah. fight somebody if necessary to American interest. But you will not use American forces indiscriminately and commit American men and women to combat unless you there's a good reason to do it. You know, he was the yeah. first president back in the last five who never got us involved in the major war. First one. We, we took some action, but we are not in the general quarters, general war situation. You ought to give him credit for that. Uh, and a lot of people don't, but that's kind of the temperament he had. And people look at his his tweets and think, well, that's the way he was. Nope. I saw him behind the curtain, behind closed doors. Not at all. Well, he was a realist. He he wasn't an idealist. He wasn't a constructivist. He was a realist. He he wanted to make sure that everything that he did, he, he measured it against how much American treasure and how much American blood it would take. And, there's, and to think that he was maligned, for not wanting to shed American blood for unnecessary purposes. Um, I mean, you mentioned it, that the military wants to keep fighting. I think the military industrial complex, the companies that build the bombs also want us to keep fighting. But Trump was a realist. I, I want to ask you about Afghanistan, because obviously Donald Trump made an effort. He made it a priority of his administration to free as many trapped Americans as he possibly could. So uh, Americans who were held hostage abroad, held in, in terrible situations abroad in, in prisons. He did everything in his power to rescue as many of them as possible. Would Donald Trump ever have left Afghanistan with thousands of Americans stuck behind Taliban lines? Now, you had two points. One, uh, no. Um, we wouldn't have left any Americans behind. But I, I would tell people, you wouldn't have to worry about that because we wouldn't be in the state we're currently in, in Afghanistan if we were there because we would have had a a government of reconciliation backed by American strength going in there, going forward. So we'd still be there. We'd still be there with our embassy open. And it, it would not, would it be pretty? Probably not. But it would have been effective. It would have, it would have worked. Look, let me give you a and This is, by the way, this is a public record story. And most people don't pick up on it. To show you how he was concerned about Americans, right near the end of his administration, we had an American who was living in Africa, picked up in, in Nigeria, and it moved across the border, we moved into Niger. One person, one. We sent SEAL Team 6 in to get this one lone American to bring him back to the United States of America, back to his family. And no other president would have done that. They would have said, oh, you know, let's talk to the government of Niger and let him figure it out, and, and let's hope he does it. His attitude was, you take an American, I'm coming for you. 
and we killed the people that arrested him. And they were actually, they weren't necessarily terrorists. They were body merchants. They brought him for a hostage. And, and the, the reward they got was, you know, a bunch of bullets and they were dead. But that's how he treated it. If he was willing to make sure we picked up and went after a single American in the middle of Niger using SEAL Team 6 from here in the United States over to there, I'd ask the rational people, do you think he would have left any Americans behind in Afghanistan with the Taliban? I think that first story answers the question of the second yeah. story. He wouldn't have. Not at all. Well, there's still Americans trapped there, which is insane. I And... I don't remember, I don't think I've seen a single like national interview of any of the Americans who have since been rescued. I mean, the media is trying to completely pigeonhole this story. And now we're seeing this new story emerging from Haiti where just a gang has taken like, I think 17 American missionaries and their families hostage and they're demanding money. And now the White House is, people are negotiating and the White House is saying, hey, don't travel to Haiti. I just... If there if there's ever an example of just night and day difference between Biden and Trump, you mentioned that he sent SEAL Team Six after one person. I don't think that there'd still be 17 Americans or however many hostage in Haiti if Trump was president. I I, I know that there wouldn't be Americans still stuck behind Taliban lines. I mean, I, I think we all understood, General, that at some point it was going to be up to the Afghan army and the Afghan military to fight their own war without us backing them up. And that and there's no sure things. In, in war, it was entirely possible they could lose. But to lose that quickly and to, ha and to hear Biden blame Trump, what was it like hearing Biden blaming you, obviously you by, by association, but the Trump administration for putting him in a position that, that that was their excuse, that the only reason the Taliban took over Afghanistan inside of a week was because of Trump? What was it like hearing that? Well, when, when I heard it, it... it caused me to get a new television set because I threw a glass in my TV and it broke. Uh, you know, you see, it's frustrating when you hear that. You know, it's a lie. It's not a different story. Actually, it was a lie. It's just yeah. not true. And I, and I challenge everybody. I said, look, public record. Go pull up the Doha agreement. It's public record. These were the conditions. It was a conditions-based agreement. We weren't going to leave until certain conditions were made. And and by the way, Vice President Pence has said that. Former Secretary of State Pompeo has said that. Former Director of National Intelligence Ratcliffe has said it. Former National Security Advisor O'Brien said it. I've said it. We all said exactly the same things. Probably one of the few times that any administration that everybody said exactly the same words. But I, but it's just it's baloney. It's a, it, it, and he lied to the American people. Joe Biden stood in front of the American people and lied to them. And I'm telling you, it just drives me nuts because. What he was saying isn't true. And I challenge people. I said, you know, you're going to have to talk to somebody who knows. I've got the notes. And, and I also know what we is in the public record. And I said, if you don't believe me, have him release the phone calls that the president made to, Bar to Barada. Have him pull up the summary of conclusions that the National Security Council is required to write after every sit-room meeting that we have out there. Those are all going to be made public record. You, know, you want to declassify something, declassify those. And you'll see, you'll see the plans we had, the work we had into place. And my frustration is he says that and people kind of buy into it. But it, some of it is not getting through because I think a lot of people are really, really skeptical of it. Because very candidly, there's people like me out there saying, I'll challenge you. You know, I'll sit down with you and I'll debate with you for hours on end. And I know what was said and I know when it was said. 
and I know where it was set at, and, and what, he, what he said is just not right. Look, Joe Biden lost America's longest war, and the American people ought to re- understand that and realize that. So there's been a lot of talk over Biden's first nine, ten months. People have, For a long time, people had assumed that it wasn't actually Biden calling the shots, that it was his deputies, it was his secretaries who were actually doing things, and he was more hands-off. But what I think we saw during the Afghanistan withdrawal was that it actually was Biden calling the shots. Secretary of State Blinken was on vacation when it when it all went down. And there were reports, there were reports, unsubstantiated, but reports that while all of this was going down, Joe Biden at least one night went to bed early because conflicting intelligence assessments were confusing him. Now, again, unsubstantiated, those are just leaks coming out of the White House. But I wanted to ask you, watching this go down, obviously you're not a mental health professional, but do you, considering the fact that, that the left wanted Donald Trump removed for being unfit for office every single day of his presidency, watching Joe Biden leave and lose Afghanistan, do you think he is cut out for the job? No, I don't. And, and, and I just, and I think even Obama knew that. Remember, Obama's the guy who said, never underestimate, when he, when he was Obama's vice president, Never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to screw something up. Well, Biden said that. Obama said that in his public record. You know, this and there's is the also, same guy. There's also Bin Laden. There's also Bin Laden who yeah, wanted well, that, potentially Obama to be assassinated so that Biden would become president and he'd destroy the country. Yeah. Well, and remember, in the Situation Room, the, right before they went after Osama Bin Laden and killed him, SEAL Team Six did that as well. They went around the room, and who said don't do it? Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden's been a politician all of his life. He hasn't run a business or been captain of a sports team, a professional team or anything like that. And this is an individual who kind of goes his own way, but he doesn't have, I think, the depth of experience that puts him in a, in a correct frame of mind to do it. And the other thing he's done, and it was clear because there were pictures of it, where he sat up at Camp David when Afghanistan was going on by himself. We would have never allowed that to happen, Max. We would have made sure we all collapsed in on the president and the vice president to give him our best advice going forward. And this is the same guy who didn't call Merkel when this was going down to the chancellor of Germany. The Germans had lost troops alongside us in Afghanistan, didn't tell them, didn't pick up the phone and call Macron of France. They had lost troops alongside us in Afghanistan. And it took him 18 hours to return Boris Johnson's, uh, the prime minister of the UK, his phone call uh, on what was happening. You know, it, it's almost like this was totally disconnected what's going on. This is also the same guy, fast forward something different, when we changed the deal uh, to make, we were going to work with the Australians uh, to develop a nuclear submarine plan, and we kept the French out. We forgot to tell the French, and for the first time in the history of the United States of America, the French recalled their ambassador. Never done before. That's because Biden didn't pick up the phone and call Macron, and that Trump would have done, and said, oh, here's here's what we're going to do. At least he would have talked to him about it. And they talk about having the adults back in the room. It's kind of scary to me. Uh, when you think about these kind of things that have happened, these are the people who run the national security apparatus. And people can say, wow, you're being critical as you're a Trump guy. No, this is, this is honest truth. Do you really think that was right? you think it's good that we don't talk to our allies? We forget to talk to them, those that have sacrificed alongside of us? It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Going to remind everyone that this podcast is also sponsored by MyPillow. Go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CD21, CD21, Charlie Delta 21 to get up to 66% off. It's the best promo code that MyPillow has available. Listen, Mike Lindell is a patriot. It's a great American company that employs a large number of American workers. Shop American. Get your family members or friends a fine MyPillow product this year for the holiday season for Christmas. Go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CD21 to get up to 66% off. Well, General Kellogg, almost out of time. I have a couple real quick questions for you. Um, You obviously were heavily involved with Operation Warp Speed, as many people in the White House were. News coming out today that the the, uh, NIH is admitting the NIH funding went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to help fund gain-of-function research to create superviruses. I, I don't want you to comment on that, but obviously you worked very closely at times with Anthony Fauci. What was your take on Anthony Fauci? Do you believe him to be an honest man? I would use Tony Fauci's own words. Tony Fauci told us, and I was with on the Coronavirus Task Force from day one with the vice president, Tony Fauci said, you know, I'm the skunk of the Garden Party. Those were his words. He had it right. He was the skunk of the garden party. Because I don't think he told the president truth. He didn't tell the vice president truth. He had his own agenda going forward out there. And, and, you know, we didn't have just one doctor on the task force. We had seven doctors with us. Everybody from Debbie Brooks to Brett mm-hmm. Gerard to Bob Redfield. We had a lot of doctors. And, but he took, kind of took over and he was kind of the face of it. And I don't think he told us the truth. I think, to me personally... Max, I think there was, a, at the very least, an inadvertent release uh, of that virus that came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that was because what we saw happen in Wuhan when they shut down a city four times the size of London, they used the military to quarantine the city, they knew something bad was going on, they didn't tell us yeah. about it, even though they were trying to get it, it didn't happen, and Tony was involved with that, and, and I think they were, and I know they were doing gain-of-function research on bat viruses, Tony's position was we weren't involved, yeah, we were, we gave him over $600,000 to do it. And that's kind of getting to be public record as well. So I, he's culpable for that. And I would, if we were still in the White House, Tony Fauci wouldn't be there. I guarantee you that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know that if any of you guys were testifying before Congress and lied under oath the way Tony Fauci lied under oath when he said he didn't fund that research, um, you all would be held in contempt. The Democrats wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't give you any cover. It'll be interesting to see whether he gets treated the same. Uh, literally, they have him dead to rights lying. So uh, before we go, General Kellogg, again, author of the new book, War by Other Means, if we put that up on the screen, anyone who wants to buy the general's book, link will be in the description. It's on sale now. You can buy it wherever books are sold. General Kellogg, are you are you done with politics? Uh, yeah, I'm done with politics unless... Uh, John J. Trump wants to run again, and if he does run again, I'll be right with him the whole time going forward. So, so, uh, so if he all... calls, if he calls, you'll you'll answer the call. Yep, I sure will. And my job is to help because I'm part of the five hundred one c three called the America First Policy Institute, where we're going to help candidates going forward and talking to people and making sure that they understand the last four years were pretty good and we had pretty good policies. Um, so if that happens, we're going to keep giving policy, but if you know, if the, you know, if Donald J. Trump decides to do it again, I'll be with him uh, full stop. Well, well, General, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving your time. You are definitely one of the good ones. There have been so many advisors, as I said earlier, who used their position and left the White House and are trying to 
punch up, not punch down, punch up on Donald Trump to malign him, to impugn him. You are one of the good ones. Anyone who who can, please do purchase General Kellogg's book. It is a great read. And I just want to thank you again, General Kellogg, for stopping by. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you, Max. Thank you. All right, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. So that was General Kellogg, really generous with his time. He's a very busy man. Really appreciate. We went through a lot. I mean, obviously, the book, it's it's not a super long book, but there's a ton in it. I mean, this is a guy who who was in was involved with the Vietnam War and all the way up. So there's it's a great read. I I really do recommend that you read it if you can if if this kind of stuff interests you. A lot of a lot of good conversation. I, I hope he didn't get into any trouble. <laughs> he mentioned that sometimes he gets into a little bit of trouble talking about classified things. I think everything he said was was in the public record. But again, I want to thank General Kellogg for stopping by and joining us today. That's going to be it for this edition of the Conservative Daily Podcast. If you like the podcast, and you like interviews like this, there is a link in the description for you to donate. If you want to donate and help us grow the show, help us bring on more guests like this, donating is one of the easiest ways to do so. That link is in the description. But another way to do it is just to sign up for our email newsletter. We're going to send out fax blast alerts to that, letting you know how you can take action and fight back against some of the horrible policies coming out of D.C. So you can find that link in the description as well. Or just subscribe. Subscribe to the audio version. We need your help to rise up in those audio rankings. Apple Podcasts is the easy way, easiest way to do it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review so we can climb up in those rankings. We're also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean, and Audible. So everywhere you find audio podcasts, you can find us there as well. We go live at 11 a.m. Eastern and 7 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. So tune in for that. And if you haven't already, text the word FREEDOM, F-R-E-E-D-O-M, to 89517. You'll get a text alert sent to your phone before we go to air, letting you know what we're talking about and giving you links for how you how and where you can watch it. So that's going to be it for this edition of the podcast. Special thank you again to General Kellogg for, for being so generous with his time. My name is Max McGuire. Remember, everyone, that the fight to take back our country is not over yet, but the only way we win is if we all stand up and fight together. <laughs>